I've been riding the same tube line for long enough now that I basically always know where I am, even if I can't see a sign on the platform. Although plenty of stations share designers or common visual language, there are quirks all over the network which clue in attentive viewers, whether it be a distinctive tiling pattern, a particular arrangement of entrances and exits, or a specific bit of blue construction hoarding, which has been set up at Turnpike Lane for years at this point. You even get to know the rhythm of the stations themselves after a time, shutting my eyes and learning the stop-start music of the train, the different lengths of each stretch between the hissing of the doors. A couple times, though, I've lost myself on the underground. It always happens the same way, regardless of where I am or what I've been doing that day. First, there's the announcement. The next station is closed. This train will not be stopping at the next station. The next station is closed. This train will not be stopping at the next station. Then, the train slows down as it passes out of the tunnel towards the platform. Then my mind seems to just short out abruptly. It's never more than 30 seconds. I've timed it with my phone. But I don't just not remember the platform. There's an absence, a positive gap in my memory, as though I'm passing through a place removed, which my mind can't quite process until we're back in the tunnel at the far side of it. These are the phantom platforms. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. been listening to some really intense music recently. As I write this, I'm listening to an album called Katyusha by Martin Escalante, Tete Leguia and Weasel Walter. You can and should pick it up on Bandcamp. That's intentionally aggressive and impossibly dense free jazz. In their own words, it's got no melodies, no beats, no ballads, no mid-tempos, no diffuse gestures. Presumably a riff in itself on famous French harsh noise wall artist Vomis Manifesto. No ideas, no changes, no development, no entertainment, and no remorse. It's just pure bloody-minded stamina, speed, and tempo. And I love it. For a long time in the mid-2010s, I was in a bit of a poptimist hole, mostly by accident. I got into second-generation K-pop songs with groups like 2NE1 and Big Bang. And of course, everyone loved Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion when it came out. And I've always vibed with the softer, more melodic end of drum and bass. So it was easy for me to get lost in the smooth, comforting melodrama of pop. Recently, though, all I crave is noise. I need that texture and hostility, 
The feeling of listening to something that's rejecting every constraint and pushing further, deeper, harder into particular feelings and sound shapes that slide around on your eardrums without much caring for pattern recognition or dance or convention or not getting tinnitus in like two years. I don't know how to explain the appeal of this sort of music unless you've tried making it yourself. The other day I was at a drum and bass gig where the mic kept feeding back, producing loud, sharp squawks that cut through the sleek polyrhythms, and I could see the techs all desperately scrabbling to fix it. But all I could think was, let it ride, man. The noises I make are all happy accidents, the result of playing with every button on every synthesizer, and I can feel the sense of joy and experimentation in a really dreadful cacophony. Ironically, Making cool, rolling drum and bass is a nightmare of precision and care, a dozen different sonic juggling balls kept in the air through a regimented understanding of frequencies and expectations. I just don't have the patience for it anymore. I want to hit go and drive a JCB for a rocky landscape, finding beauty in chaos and discord, not spend years learning how to steer the delicate machinery of a race car into a perfect slide. I want to pull things down and kiss the wreckage. Let's get messy. Screw it. All this chaos invites a question. What's the furthest you can push a piece of music? It's a problem that has haunted the avant-garde for years. Most famously, John Cage's piece, As Slow As Possible, composed for organ in 1987, is designed to be played exactly as the title suggests. A standard performance of the original 1985 piece on a piano would normally last between 20 and 70 minutes, since the natural resonance of a piano runs out at a certain point, and you're just left with long periods of silence. Recomposing the piece for organ, however, allows notes to be held indefinitely, or at least as long as it's possible to keep the bellows pushing air through the pipes. A version of As Slow As Possible began playing in St. Bacardi Church in Halberstadt in 2001 and has continued to this day. If it continues to run at current pace, the piece is projected to finish on September 5th, 2640, having run for 639 continuous years. I like to think about this piece as a concrete point of reference for an impossible length of time. Based on the UK life expectancy for men, I'm unlikely to even see the end of the first part of the piece in 2072. Who can imagine what strange and unlikely world people will be living in 600 years from now? What horrors they may have witnessed, what triumphs. And yet, I hope they manage to keep the organ running, even if they forget why after a time. The idea of maintaining a connected tradition for that long feels like the closest someone like me can get to the idea of a sacrament. It's keeping the torch burning across generations, a commitment, a benediction, a way of praying that future generations will still be able to uphold the artistic values that allow this type of performance to continue. Playing one note at a time for years on end, in the name of a complete work that you can never hope to experience, that's beautiful to me. There's another piece of music that's been running for a similarly extended period of time. 
It's a music box in the bottom of a disused lift shaft in St. Paul's tube station. Nobody knows exactly where it came from or when it was fitted. The area it sits in was used when the station was being built as an access tunnel down from the surface. Now there's nothing there but the music box, a strange enclosed device, all grinding gears and off-kilter drilling, interspersed with occasional bursts of notes in no discernible order. You can hear it running if you stand at the right point on the platform, although most mistake it for construction sounds or possibly the distant tolling of the cathedral bells. That's actually how it survived for so long. If it weren't for the occasional notes, coming through sometimes days or weeks apart, you could quite easily assume the noise was coming from something other than the little speaker on the rear side of the box. It was removed for a time in 1997, when the station was renovated to add escalators. Long thought of as a late addition to the design, likely added by some mischievous member of staff, Engineers were surprised to find that the music box was actually fitted perfectly into an indentation amongst the machinery of the former elevator hall. It didn't take much to pop it out of its snug little enclosure, but as soon as it was removed, it ceased to function, despite not having any obvious means to draw power from the socket. The box didn't match any commercial design and initially seemed to be completely impregnable, fully sealed on all sides by some type of invisible weld. After some time being passed around the archives at TfL as an oddity, it was sent to a musicologist at King's College London, who previously studied the history of musical boxes. Dr Imogen Dumas had the box x-rayed in order to try to see the inner workings without taking it apart. It was at this point that the story took a strange turn. Dr Dumas didn't expect much from the scan. Although you can use an x-ray to see through the metal, it usually only works in specific circumstances with precise calibrations for the machinery, taking into account the thickness and exact material of the item. The music box itself was a cube of sheer metal on five of its six sides, with the sixth side being the same barring seven tiny equidistant holes, making up the outlet from which its tinny song crackled. Her plan was to take a scan of each side looking for a difference in the results, which might indicate some type of seam or joint that could be interrogated for a point of entry. What she found instead was... hard to explain. Firstly, the X-ray had no problem at all penetrating the dull, metallic exterior. Less than no problem, in fact. The images were returned crystal clear, as though there were no enclosure in the way at all. Each of the six sides, however, showed a completely different and incompatible interior architecture, in ways which baffled her on the level of direct personal challenge. Depending on what angle it was viewed from, the box appeared to contain, in order from the top, a spring-wound pinned barrel that triggered notes manually, a sequence of bells and tiny resonating percussive panels powered by clockwork, a vinyl disc-based device, not unlike a miniature jukebox, a square scrolling paper sheet similar to a player piano, a slightly more advanced version of the above based on one long linear strip 
formatted like ticker tape. And finally, a printed circuit board, complete with a little tinny speaker. Even putting aside the spatial impossibility, Dr. Dumas knew enough from her studies to be able to immediately spot issues with the devices inside. They were of fragmentary and confusing design, with gears set against themselves in a way that would make them impossible to turn, and moving parts that would necessarily clash with others. The PCB lacked a battery, obviously, but it also lacked sections of solder that would be needed to even complete a circuit. The box was barely five inches across, but apparently it contained contradictory multitudes which not only disagreed with Euclidean geometry, but also with, more importantly, her own extensive research into the subject of music boxes. None of the sounds that the machine had been producing could have come from any of the machinery they'd imaged. Even the circuit board was out, due to the strange oscillations that had been recorded while the box was still in place, which suggested some type of resonant chamber inside. This was part of the reason Dr. Dumas had been so intrigued by it in the first place. It had been producing sounds at a volume and depth of reverberation that was far larger than the little box should have been capable of, suggesting something innovative and worthy of further study within. Across its asynchronous sides, however, there was one similarity. On at least four of the contraptions, it was possible to make out part of the score that it was set up to play. It was only a handful of notes, but by careful study of the punch tape and the setup of the keys, Dr. Dumas was able to confirm that these were consistent. This is where having a musicologist involved really began to pay off. She was able to reconstruct and simulate the entire possible scale that could be played on one of the music box sides based on the length and thickness of the visible chimes. The available notes didn't follow standard Western semitone intervals. They instead seemed to be based on a system of harmonic overtones, matched in resonant pairs, up a scale quite unlike anything she'd ever seen before. Played together, she theorised that these would produce frequencies that would sound somewhere between discordant and positively alien to most listeners, but surprisingly, that wasn't the case. When she simulated the next three visible measures in a piece of software, she was surprised to find that, somehow, they cancelled each other out. In the same way that a set of noise-cancelling headphones produce the exact opposite frequency to surrounding background noise, known as the antiphase. Playing the notes as marked on the sheet produced... nothing. The software she was using would simply not generate any sound when challenged to play them side by side. This added to the pile of things about the music box that didn't make any sense. Messing about with frequencies and semitones isn't exactly a new idea. Playing two sounds that might cancel each other out doesn't actually silence the noise, it just makes it impossible to perceive since it's no longer intermittently pressuring and therefore vibrating your eardrum. 
Phase and antiphase played in sync will still exert pressure on your ears and be detectable by the right equipment. If pushed to extremes far beyond those possible by any consumer-grade hardware, it would be possible to silently damage your hearing with this method, although it would take an absurdly loud background noise and a near-vacuum seal onto your head for the antiphase generator, and the effect would be closer to deep-sea diving than listening to music. What you would never get is nothing. Full cancellation. No pressure change and no detectable output. Even noise cancellation in almost perfect synchronization will produce artifacts, little bits of noise that escape the waveform. But nonetheless, no matter how she adjusted her software, that's what she got. Dr. Dumas knew that this must ultimately be a simulation problem. And so, after a month of obsessive calculation, and then another two months working closely with a custom fabricator, she had an approximation of one side of the music box's interior, sitting on the desk in her office. Next to it, she had transcribed the three measures due to follow. On December 6th, 1998, Dr. Imogen Dumas played the next three notes. And, for just a moment, the city fell silent. The Sound of London isn't something I've had much call to discuss on this show. The Sound of Cities is, at least in part, the sound of cars, which was one of the most unnerving parts of the early pandemic, when people were still largely taking lockdown seriously. The streets were quiet, but it felt incredibly noisy all of a sudden, with the dull drone of engines reduced to the occasional passing roar amongst the silence. Even outside of cars and machines, though, London is an immense and immeasurable pile of living, breathing organisms starting with humans and running through foxes, cats, birds, mice, mosquitoes, larvae, and amoeba, all humming with a gentle life force. There are millions of tiny vibrations and pressure changes that we feel as much in our gut as in our ears. The ground beneath you is constantly moving. We are lulled by it, held in a constant cradle of thrumming life. Attempts to create perfect silence, then, tend to disturb and upset us. Scientists have put together insulated, suspended rooms designed to muffle sound to the quietest possible level for the purpose of testing equipment and conducting sound-based experiments. Known as anechoic chambers, anyone who has spent any amount of time in one tends to report a feeling of profound unease and discomfort, as their ears adjust and they become able to hear their own heartbeat in their chest. That's not what playing the next three notes on the replica music box did, though. An anti-phase signal rang out for miles across London, centred on Dr. Dumas's office near Somerset House, which deadened all sound. For a few short moments in December, there were no car engines, 
There were no idle conversations. There was no background music, no buzzing flies, no whirring fans, nothing. Everyone felt it. All illusions stripped away in a sharpened moment. All sense of comfort abruptly shattered. Breaths stolen from chests, hearts stilled, and minds momentarily clear. All the reliable shivers of the world torn back, the cradling dance of molecules juddering to a halt, throwing us from our sleep. As I've already mentioned, phase and antiphase in almost perfect synchronization will leave artifacts. Noise cancellation can only work on that which it anticipates. It's the reason why quick, loud noises will cut through, somehow even more piercing for their isolation, no matter how well-attuned your method. The antiphase Silence London was only effective on the sound it expected to be there. Any unfamiliar vibrations, though, somehow masked or occluded in the daily cacophony, were suddenly catapulted to the fore. In those seconds, people on the underground all over London became aware of the phantom platforms. I was riding the train that day, in town for a school trip to the Science Museum. We were between St. James's Park and Sloan Square when the silence hit. But nonetheless, slicing through the empty air, I heard the announcement. The next station is closed. This train will not be stopping at the next station. The next station is closed. The engine began to slow as we pulled in. It was only for the briefest moment. I never saw the platform itself. But I remember looking to my left, up towards the front of the train, and seeing a blinding white light engulf the carriages that had reached the closed station. And between my fingers, I could see the train being swarmed, engulfed, devoured, faster than I could comprehend, by thousands of tiny, ethereal creatures. Everyone in the tunnel being unmade and recreated in a heartbeat, all skittering legs and grasping mandibles, pulling apart the poor souls just ahead of me, and the mouths of the passengers pulled wide, silently screaming while it happened. It was only a moment blink of an eye, before I was back on the far side, riding through the tunnels as usual. But in that moment, I experienced a silence that permanently disconnected me from the peace of the world. And I was one of the lucky ones. I never saw the platform, but plenty did. In peak times, the tube might be carrying over half a million people over 543 trains. If only a fraction of them were in the tunnel at the time, that could still be 50,000 people who witnessed the phantom platforms. After that day in December, 
London saw a huge and notable uptick in instance of the Capgras delusion. The belief that the people around you have been kidnapped and replaced with near-identical clones or imposters. There was a commonality amongst sufferers, though. They insisted that their loved ones had been destroyed and replaced while on the tube. They claimed that they had the evidence. They just needed another moment of perfect silence. That's all they needed. They could prove it. Dr. Dumas got it the worst, although we may never know what she saw in those moments. What we do know is that she immediately smashed the replica to bits and then set her office on fire in order to destroy all copies of the plans. Before the fire alarm had even started, she was out of the building, original music box in hand, sprinting at maximum speed towards St. Paul's underground station, where, eight minutes later, she kicked down a security door to get to the disused atrium. Once there, she shoved the music box back into its former enclosure with a controlled ferocity that surpassed mania and also broke the enclosure itself, denting it into the wall so as to make the box almost impossible to remove. Her job done, she took off her shoes, lay down on the floor in front of the box and, with blood pouring out of her nose, ears and tear ducts, died of multiple massive aneurysms, her brain essentially pouring out of her onto the dirty tiles of the underground. It's been 25 years since the silence. The music box is still there in St Paul's station, jauntily crackling out a burst of notes every so often. We still don't know what it's doing. Nobody has touched it since. They don't dare. I still hear the announcement sometimes, when I'm travelling alone on the train. Something about that day changed me. And now I can't unhear the approach of phantom platforms. Coming at me unstoppably through the tunnel. But now, when I hear it, I close my eyes. And I pray I don't hear any more. next episode of Subterraneans. I'm not sure yet. We'll see. But it'll be the last episode of season six. I want to thank you for spending time with me here in the underground. I really appreciate it. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subterpod on Twitter 
or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, and Andrew. If I could open your body and slip up inside of your skin, I would. To possess is to be in control. Thanks for listening.